For this episode of Metaphors Be With You, we'll be talking about the second word of the title of the first movie. At this rate, I'll finish up in about 33,000 episodes. Hi, I'm Rob Hyard of Chipperish Media, and this is a podcast about symbolism and allegory in Star Wars. The movies, the TV shows, the books, and everything else. Each episode will take a topic and apply it across whatever Star Wars media seems most appropriate. War! What exactly is it good for? I know how you kids today love your Edwin Starr references. Well, if you stick war in space, it gives me a bunch of stuff to talk about, so that's nice. But what does Star Wars itself say about war? That's what we'll be discussing today. The original trilogy, to my reading, doesn't have a whole lot to say about the nature of war itself. It does give a little commentary on the Vietnam War, as I mentioned back in Episode 3, but I rarely see it stepping back and treating warfare as anything but a bit of background to motivate various bits of heroism and villainy. One of the few messages that I do glean is that war is cyclical. We hear that Luke's father fought in something called the Clone Wars, which gently implies that maybe there's a war every generation. Though, to be fair, this could just be a case of wanting to place this in a World War II sort of place, where we're in the shadow of the worst conflict anyone can remember as we move towards something possibly worse. We also see a little of the cost of war, in the form of around half a dozen rebel pilots, whose faces we see, dying in front of us. We also see a bunch of rebel troopers at the beginning of A New Hope die, but I would argue that we're a little too early in to really care about these dudes or understand what's going on yet. For me, the most affecting cost-of-war casualty we see on screen, as opposed to the big plot-important deaths, is the nameless Ewok who's killed in the ground battle in Return of the Jedi. And it's not that Ewoks are cuter than humans so their deaths matter more. Alright, maybe it's a little of that. It's that we linger on the reaction from the other Ewok in the shot. All the human rebels that we see die do it when there's not really an opportunity for anyone to mourn their passing. But we watch this other Ewok see, acknowledge, and grieve about this death, all in the space of a few seconds, and that feels to me like a comment on the real emotional cost of war. On the other hand, we do get some perspective on the reasons for war, in the form of Vader asking Luke to join him so they can end this destructive conflict and bring order to the galaxy. Palpatine says something related in Revenge of the Sith, right after telling his apprentice to go kill a bunch of children and the Separatist leaders so we can at last have peace. Needless to say, having the most evil characters in your cast be the main ones who talk about peace and order makes a statement, and that statement is that war and chaos are preferable to peace under a dictatorship. Now, before you judge that statement one way or the other, I'm going to mention something that makes war in the Star Wars galaxy substantially scarier for the populace at large than war in the real world, which is light speed. Consider the beginning of Revenge of the Sith, where there's a pitched battle happening in the skies over the capital of the Republic. The Separatists were able to bring a major fleet directly to the heart of the opposing government, and there was absolutely nothing that the Republic could do about it. In the real world, bombers can at least theoretically be intercepted by other planes. But in Star Wars, unless you already know the exact route your opponent is going to take, there doesn't seem to be any way to stop a ship from going where it's going in light speed. As another example, look at the Battle of Scarif in Rogue One. Our brave heroes sneak into the Imperial base in a stolen shuttle, and that's all pleasantly conventional. But once the rebels decide to actually intervene for real, they have the equivalent of an aircraft carrier and a bunch of support ships on the scene in a couple of minutes. And it's followed by an Imperial aircraft carrier and the Death Star a few minutes later. So now imagine that you're a regular citizen of the Galactic Empire. You know there's a war on, but you don't think there's anything worth fighting for near where you live. And one day, a minor skirmish turns into a major naval engagement with two Star Destroyers and a Mon Cal cruiser falling from the sky onto your planet, wreaking who knows what kind of environmental horrors, not to mention the general mayhem and explosions of the battle itself. 
Admittedly, Scarif is an extreme example, and it looks like the whole planet is actually an Imperial military base, but it's not hard to imagine that the war can come to you at any time, at any place, and blow up people and things you love. And I haven't even mentioned the planet Alderaan, which was destroyed literally without warning, with the vast majority of its people not even aware anything was wrong before the Death Star appeared, presumably from light speed. By the time of the Force Awakens, the First Order has invented a weapon that doesn't even need to come to you to blow up your planet. Now contrast that with the U.S. wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. This conflict has been going on since before my children were born, but I'm not sure they know it's happening. Pretty sure the younger one doesn't, in fact. It's certainly not affecting their day-to-day -day lives, unless you count being asked to take off their shoes at the airport. So war should be completely terrifying to the civilians of the galaxy, but we frankly don't see much of them in the Star Wars movies. Which is why I'm a big fan of the Canto Bite sequence in The Last Jedi. First of all, Rose and Finn both understand instinctively that the only way to become wealthy enough to be one of these beings they see here is war profiteering. The galaxy has one industry that it seems like all others feed into, and that is war. And we see the Star Wars equivalent of Halliburton and Blackwater executives living it up, drinking and gambling on their flying yachts, a handful of days after the capital of the galactic government was destroyed by terrorists. These people do not give a shit about anything, because insulated by clouds of money, they don't have to. Hell, they may see the destruction of the government that was trying to promote peace and stability through diplomacy as a net positive. And as if that wasn't damning enough, DJ then shows us how they sell weapons to both sides of the same conflict, immediately demonstrating they're not merely misguided patriots or anything similar. They have no ideology beyond profit, which they're happy to piss away at this ultra-luxurious casino, while animals and impoverished children are whipped a hundred meters away. Alone among the Star Wars movies, The Last Jedi really has something to say about war itself, and it's a deeply cynical view. The Clone Wars cartoon, of which they're over 44 hours, found some time to say some things about war as well. This is good, because the movies very much skipped over the actual war itself, just showing us the beginning and end of the conflict. Of course, there's an argument that since we know the war was engineered by Palpatine for cynical purposes, we didn't really need to see the middle part. And it's true that the Clone Wars is not at all necessary to the story of Anakin Skywalker's fall, but it's still interesting and worthwhile on its own merits. In fact, there was an episode of the show that I thought did a great job of leveraging the fact that the entire war is a sham. It's called Heroes on Both Sides, and it follows Ahsoka as she learns about the regular people in the Separatist movement, and how they have real concerns and aren't all mustache-twirling monsters. We also see how the actual villainy of the Confederacy of Independent Systems is tied up in corporate interests and greed. It does my little bleeding heart good. Another favorite of mine is the four-episode arc that begins with Darkness on Umbara. In fact, this arc is so metaphorically dense that I'm probably going to have to dedicate a future episode to just breaking it down. But the reason I bring it up now is that it's an episode that delves into what it's like to be a clone in the Grand Army of the Republic, and I was immediately struck by how it's similar to the draft in the real world. In both cases, the powerful have decided that a war needs to be fought, but are unwilling to sacrifice anything of their own for it. The Republic grows their troops from scratch, while in the real world, the wealthy can pay a doctor to diagnose their own children with bone spurs, ensuring that the war will be fought by proxies they don't care about. But for the soldiers that do go to war, they just have to trust that the war their betters have decided they may sacrifice their lives for is worth it. In the case of the Clone Wars, we know for absolute certain that the entire conflict is a sham engineered by Palpatine, which makes the clone situation even less justifiable. A cause like the Rebellion, actively chosen by adult beings who decided of their own free will that possibly sacrificing their lives and the tyranny of the Empire has much better moral standing than the Clone Wars, even setting aside the fact of Palpatine's deception. The Confederacy of Independent Systems, unlike its namesake, the Confederated States of America, has the stated goal of escaping the increasingly corrupt governance of the Republic, 
To this end, they have manufactured a droid army that doesn't feel fear or pain. The Republic, on the other hand, doesn't seem to have any stated goals except to keep the separatist systems under its thumb, and it gestates an army of thinking, feeling slaves to enforce its will. Personally, I find it fascinating that Star Wars gives us a conflict that, in broad strokes, looks like the U.S. Civil War, but makes the equivalent of the Union the slaveholders. Much like the Vietnam War allegory in Return of the Jedi, I think it's intended to make the audience a bit uncomfortable. One could also argue that, in-universe, Palpatine arranged the clone army specifically to further compromise the Jedi and deepen the Shroud of the Dark Side. After all, with the Separatists declaring war now, the Jedi can't really be picky about the army that has suddenly dropped into their lap. And once they've worked with the clones for a while, many of them clearly form bonds with their troops. And once those bonds are formed, perhaps they're less inclined than they might otherwise be to push for a more ethical solution to the army problem. So that's my spiel on the second word of the title. Stay tuned until after the music to hear the rest of my ideas for podcasts based on two-word movie titles. There's no telling how far this bit can go. To suggest more ideas for this or any other hypothetical podcasts, contact me at rhyrate on Twitter or on the Chiprush forums. But for the real discussion action, you'll want to become a patron and join the conversations happening on the Discord chat. For just a few bucks a month, you can keep Chiprush going and talk to some amazing and lovely people who, coincidentally, like some of the same podcasts you do. And if you just want to help out any podcast you love, give it a positive review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening, and metaphors be with you. And now, the remaining pairs of podcast episodes I'm thinking about for the future. Love and Actually, about how the greatest of all emotions is frankly only okay when you really get down to it. Kindergarten and Cop, describing my adorable adventures in primary school and my confession to the police about various atrocities therein. X and Machina, a deep dive into how my ex-girlfriend is actually a Greek statue lowered by a crane. Jurassic and Park, investigating how great city parks are and how you should get your ass to them as often as possible. <laughs>